Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Foreign Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is a product of policyforum.net and we are based at the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school, Crawford School of Public Policy. If you want to learn more about us or about public policy, then please go ahead and check out crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. We've got a wide range of resources, short courses and degrees available for you. And before we get started with this episode, we'd like to thank all of you for your support during this challenging time and for being so understanding as we record these pods without a studio. Having a community to rely on during times like these is absolutely crucial and we'd really love you to join our pod squad community if you haven't already. We're on Facebook. You can find us as Policy Forum Pod. Now is the perfect time to join us, in fact, because we are still collecting questions for the next episode of our Ask Policy Forum podcast. That's the podcast where you get to ask the questions. And you can ask our presenters hardcore public policy questions or about their favorite recipe for end of days, bolognese, whatever comes to your mind. Don't forget to join and leave us your questions in the group. Now, today we want to talk about infrastructure projects and COVID-19. To ease the impact on the economy, the Australian government has spent more than $320 billion on stimulus, most of which has focused on health funding, welfare payments, business subsidies and bank lending. But researchers from Crawford School at the Australian National University say that evidence from the global financial crisis shows that infrastructure stimulus is crucial in economic recovery and it must not be forgotten in the coronavirus response. However, large infrastructure projects face many challenges. An estimated $30 billion in infrastructure investment has been lost due to project delays, cancellations or mothballing. But infrastructure projects can play a really important role in getting economies firing again. And as countries around the world start lifting restrictions, perhaps now is the time to refocus on our infrastructure needs and how they might have changed in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. So today we want to ask, what's the role for infrastructure in the post-coronavirus crisis economic recovery? And to answer this question, I'm delighted to welcome back Associate Professor Sarah Bice and Kirsty O'Connell to our virtual pod cupboard. Sarah is, of course, an Associate Professor at Crawford School. She's also the Vice-Chancellor's Future Scheme Senior Fellow for her work on the Next Generation Engagement Program, which is Australia's largest study into community engagement in infrastructure. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Martin, how are you going under the duty? I'm 
<laughs> I'm, do- I'm doing very well under the duvet here. How is our new socially distancing world treating you? Uh, well, I, I feel socially distant, but not from my children because homeschooling is a whole experience in and of itself. So, uh, yes, I, I wouldn't mind socially distancing from them every now and then. And I'm sure a lot of parents out there could identify. And hello to you, Kirsty. Kirsty is, of course, the industry director of the Next Generation Engagement Program. She's also director of the Engagement People. How are you, Kirsty? Martin, hi. I'm doing well from under the towel. <laughs> are you pretty warm under there? It, it is warm. It's warm. It- I'm shrugging off autumn, but I am a bit further north than you guys, so... It's not bad. It does get pretty toasty under these uh, makeshift recording devices that we've all set up. But it's great to have you both on the pod again. So let's have a talk about infrastructure. First of all, I want to have a look at where we were in Australia in regards to infrastructure projects, sort of going into the coronavirus crisis. I mean, Australia was pursuing a massive infrastructure program of around $235 billion. Um, But even before the pandemic, Infrastructure Australia had called for a program almost three times that size to meet our future needs. So why was there such a large gap between the money that was on the table and what was actually needed? Perhaps if I could put that to you, Kirsty. I guess, Martin, what we've seen is huge growth in population, um, which has perhaps outpaced where infrastructure delivery was at. And, and, you know, $235 billion is an unprecedented build. So we were already making some big strides to address that gap. Um, but what Infrastructure Australia was saying is that over the next 15 years, we need to spend triple that in order to keep pace and bring some of our regional and remote communities particularly up to the standard where we'd like to see them in terms of infrastructure service. Your work estimates that Australia had lost about $30 billion in infrastructure projects in recent years. Where was that money being lost and, what, and why was it happening, Sarah? That's a great question, Martin. So there are a number of factors that have influenced that loss that we estimate. Now, that's about $30 billion along Australia's east coast in major infrastructure projects over the past decade between 2007 and 2017. And those projects were ones that had either been delayed, cancelled, mothballed, so they kind of got built or partly built and set to one side, or delivered, but simply not as originally intended. In some instances, there were regulatory difficulties. In some instances, like in Victoria, where we saw the East-West link collapse after the change of government, there were political issues. But what we found is that community opposition in all of those cases contributed to those infrastructure losses. So this is something that we're very interested in in our own work in the Next Generation Engagement Program and also in the Institute for Infrastructure in Society, where we're investigating the ways in which community opposition and the corollary community engagement can both reduce those negative impacts and losses to infrastructure, but also create better infrastructure for communities that really meets their needs and that sees communities deriving societal value. So can we drill down a little more into that sort of community opposition aspect? I mean, are the types of complaints that were being raised by the community in terms of delaying some of these big infrastructure projects, were they legitimate or was it a result of poor community consultation at some point in, in the project itself? 
You'd have to answer, as, as a social scientist at least, I have to answer that it's always a combination of things. We know that community engagement requires an extraordinary amount of resources. And we also know that it requires very professional conduct. It's not just something that any hairdresser or taxi driver who's really good at talking to people can go out and do. It is a profession. So in some instances, we've seen difficulties because community engagement was perhaps not taken seriously enough. The engagements didn't occur early enough and the professionals undertaking the work weren't well enough resourced. And by the time they really were well resourced, they were having to fight fires, not be proactive and set out a really positive relationship. And so it's that relationship building that's really critical to getting community buy-in into major infrastructure projects. And certainly there are instances where opposition to projects is very, very valid. And it doesn't mean that every community member will agree, but there are certainly instances where communities have opposed projects and they have extremely valid reasons to do so. So we've talked about some of the community opposition that frequently comes up in relation to big infrastructure projects. But I'm also kind of interested in the the flip side of that, which is, you know, as a society, we've been sort of isolated to our homes for a number of months. Um, we've been yeah, this kind of relentless barrage of, of bad and worrying and anxiety-inducing uh, news coming at us in relation to the coronavirus crisis. Is there another side of this in terms of these infrastructure projects? Can these big infrastructure projects provide a kind of psychological boost to societies? Martin, we talk a lot about the psychological impact of infrastructure delivery, both in terms of of the communities that host infrastructure projects and also in terms of the staff that work on them. And I think there's a a real double-edged sword to this. So on the one hand, it will be a real positive, I think, for communities to see infrastructure projects rolling, to see that stimulus, to see people in work. So there's, there's definitely a positive there. But we also know that for people who are experiencing infrastructure delivery, it can be an extremely stressful experience. And one of the things we've talked about is how to better understand the cumulative impact of infrastructure delivery. So for those communities being hit by more than one project, more than one event, um, and how to do that in a way that builds resilience rather than destroying it. And so I think what we have to appreciate in coming back Um, from this coronavirus crisis is just how much the Australian community has been through. So you've got drought, you've got bushfires, you've got COVID-19. Add to that the impact of a major infrastructure project and we could be dealing with some very stressed communities. So I think that's where initiatives like, for example, um, the New South Wales government's provision of a personal manager acquisitions for major infrastructure projects is really important. And that particular initiative sees a staff member provided who helps walk impacted landowners through the construction process. So it's it's less stressful for them and really to take the view of how can we make this easier for the people that we're impacting. I think that kind of approach is going to be essential as we roll out these much needed infrastructure projects more so than ever that we will really need to appreciate that we're dealing with individuals and communities who have been through a lot in the last 12 months um, and that they may not um, be 
you know, as willing to extend themselves as they have previously. They've already given a lot of goodwill towards the COVID-19 response. So we need to think about how not to dip into that goodwill bank too too much further, how we can instead be of service. I think just that idea, Kirsty, of being of service is really important. And you've provided a really nuanced view of the experiences of people in relation to major infrastructure projects. One of the things that we're seeing governments start to do, and it's a really positive trend, is to think about what we call place-based infrastructure. And so this is a shift away from a kind of project by project approach to actually recognizing how community members themselves experience a variety of projects at one time. So how do they experience the projects that are happening in their place, as the name suggests? And I think that that particular perspective is going to be really important and really helpful in terms of supporting community resilience and psychological well-being as we come out of the coronavirus crisis. I think that there can be a lot of positives from place-based infrastructure delivery, especially where it's likely that people are going to be spending more time in their local communities. And there's an opportunity here for things like revitalized or well-maintained parks and gardens, uh, playgrounds where it's safe to reopen them, maintenance to schools. These types of things can be not only reassuring, uh, but also really encouraging. And so I think that there is a role for infrastructure to play to help Australians feel really positive about the places where they live and the future that's possible. How does Australia stack up in terms of its management of infrastructure and its management of community engagement? I mean, it strikes me that losing $30 billion in infrastructure projects is a big hit to uh, to the economy and the infrastructure sector. How do we stack up against perhaps our Asian na- neighbours or, or other uh, countries? I was going to say that I think actually Australia um, is quite progressive in terms of community engagement and probably sitting on a par with countries like the UK, um, which do tend to take this stuff quite seriously. But um, one of the criticisms, I suppose, that communities regularly level at public sector infrastructure projects is that they've been engaged too late. They've been asked for their view after all the decisions have made. Um, and I think that's that's actually a fairly legitimate criticism. Uh, but the problems that we're dealing with in Australia, Martin, certainly aren't unique. They're the kind of challenges that are being felt in infrastructure projects right around the world. Um, so it's, it's certainly something that uh, our counterparts in the UK, in the US, in Canada, in New Zealand, in other jurisdictions want to get their heads around. Um, and then when you look at our Asian neighbours, there's um, certainly some distinctions and some extra challenges in terms of a very different system of government. Community engagement kind of implies a strong will toward public participation and that more democratic way of delivering um, infrastructure. So it's interesting to see how um, jurisdictions like China are now starting to grapple with that, particularly as they look at things like the Belt and Road Initiative, where they're dealing with countries uh, outside their own jurisdiction with different forms of government, as well as uh, their own citizens, and seeking to really explore what community engagement should look like and how to allow 
communities to play a role. I really want to back up what Kirsty has said around Australia being quite progressive in terms of community engagement. There's an international body, the International Association for Public Participation, and the Australasian group is the largest branch globally of that body, which was initially founded in the United States. Now, when you think about the population difference between Australia and New Zealand and the U.S., and that particular group is strongest in this region, it really speaks to the professionalism and the investment in community engagement that we see. The other point I'd like to make is that our research group is one of the few that we know of globally that started to put a price on some of these community oppositions and delays. But out of Singapore, the EDHEC Infrastructure Institute has similarly been looking at the types of risks that lead to lack of investment in infrastructure or losses in infrastructure investment. And in their research, which came out in 2015, they found that related regulatory and policy backflipping, so where governments experience a lot of community opposition, and again, I'll go back to the East-West link in Victoria, because that's a political example that's pretty familiar to a lot of our listeners, where that political pressure occurs, it's the policy backflipping that is the number one risk that leads institutional investors to steer away from investment in infrastructure. So you mentioned the East-West project there as an example of, of one that has been derailed, not to you know use a pun there, but um, can you give us an example of, of uh, a big infrastructure project that has gone really well? And what were the particular characteristics that made that, that got it across the line? I'm going to hand over to Kirsty on that one, because she is a professional who has worked on more than $17 billion worth of infrastructure projects in Australia. So Kirsty, what do you reckon? <laughs> so nice handball there, Sarah. I think um, certainly one of the projects that was just the darling of the infrastructure sector for some time was Sydney Metro. And certainly some of the features of the engagement on that project were very early and very proactive engagement and a willingness to go outside the square, you know, to think outside the square. So, for example, I know of one particular case on that project where they had an elderly lady who was living um, immediately opposite a construction site for Metro, and she was extremely bothered by seeing um, construction. She was she was quite infirm and very worried about seeing construction and seeing workers immediately outside her window all the time. She's quite frightened by it. And um, they actually installed um, a camouflaging screen for her around her veranda so that she was, you know, quite relaxed about it. And, you know, that's just a really micro example. But they were certainly a team that was prepared um, to look at things differently and to think about solutions that would work for the individual. So that was a great case. And and again, I think that early engagement is just so important um, in terms of consulting with communities and building a consensus for the solution that you're delivering. It also didn't hurt that it was a public transport initiative at a time when Sydney was really wanting um, more public transport. So it's probably that combination of technique as well as the underlying value proposition being strong. Well, let's take a quick break there. But when we come back, I want to take a look at what infrastructure and infrastructure projects might look like in the sort of post-COVID-19 crisis world. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm still here with Sarah Bice and Kirsty O'Connell. Now let's talk about infrastructure and the coronavirus crisis. Kirsty, much of the government's spending during the COVID-19 crisis has focused on health funding, business subsidies, bank lending and welfare payments. Has the government missed a trick here in not considering infrastructure in stimulus spending? I think uh, what we're going to see actually, Martin, will be quite similar uh, to what happened post-GFC. So although the, the early stimulus is all about supporting consumption, and rightly so, um, the follow-up and what in fact became the major piece of the stimulus uh, in 20, 2009 um, was infrastructure spending. But as we know, infrastructure spending takes a while to ramp up and a little while to um, achieve stimulus. So that underlying consumption support is really important. Uh, and certainly Dr Stephen Kennedy from ANU, who is the Secretary of Treasury, um, supported that measure, and I think we can expect to see some similar plays this time around. Um, I think what we will see, though, uh, is a preference for shovel-ready projects, as we like to call them. So it's those projects that are already rolling. Perhaps they've passed the early stages of planning and procurement. They'll be fast-tracked, and I think we'll also um, see a real preference for ramping up maintenance projects, which are, are very quick to roll, they're quick to procure, they're relatively simple but they're not necessarily simple to engage on. And I think that's where we need to appreciate how the Australian community has changed. Now, those projects there you're talking about are ones which were presumably in the works before the coronavirus crisis hit us. But, you know, the post-COVID-19, assuming we do get a post-COVID-19 world, is likely to look very different from the one that we went going into this crisis. So how are our infrastructure needs going to change in this uh, in, in, in the post-coronavirus crisis world? Well, Kirstie and I were talking about this question. before. It is a great question, isn't it? I, we, we were talking about the ways in which anecdotally people are really starting to experience their neighborhoods in a much more important way. So your world becomes quite small quite quickly when you're not going into your office, when overseas travel becomes a dream for the future. And one of the things we expect to see is a growth in requirements for neighborhood level investment. So this might be things like playgrounds and swimming pools and skate parks. It might be investment in um, parks and gardens, or as we saw in the U.S. post the Great Depression, investment in a series of cultural 
infrastructure builds. So we're very likely to see infrastructure that does focus on making local places and spaces even more amenable. And that's going to be quite an amazing thing, given how well Australia performs on those lifestyle quality indicators anyway. And Kirsty, you had some really interesting thoughts about what we could learn from, for example, the way communities have come together around the Anzac Day dawn services that they had to adapt. Absolutely, Sarah, I think, and fully backing up the points that you've made there, um, I think what we've seen is is almost the development of micro communities. So we've had the chance to slow down, to get off the hamster wheel. We're talking to our neighbours, we're socialising with our kids, we're even educating our own kids. Um, so, you know, the way people experience and define community for themselves is becoming a very local proposition. And certainly we saw with the light up at dawn service on um, Anzac Day, people really coming together at a micro level. So I think we need to think about that in the way we engage communities. We can expect them to be a whole lot more interested in that piece of footpath that we're renovating, in how we deliver uh, a local water pipeline upgrade, for example. You know, they're really going to care, I think, about the local amenity impacts um, during construction and during delivery, but also what it looks like post-construction. Um, so I think we're going to have to be prepared to engage on a street-by-street level in a way that we perhaps haven't had to before. Do you think, I mean, I talked in the intro about how much the government has actually spent on stimulus spending so far. It's in the region of $320 billion. Once we get to the other side of this crisis, I th- is the money going to be there to to finance a, a big ramping up in infrastructure spending? So Australia has a long-term infrastructure plan. It's led by Infrastructure Australia. And as recently as October 2019, Infrastructure came out with, Australia came out with its major infrastructure audit, which was the document that did note this $600 billion infrastructure need to 2035. Australia plans for infrastructure well in advance, and there will be the funding necessary. The other important thing to remember about infrastructure is that in periods of deep economic recession and economic crisis, and this is at a global level, infrastructure is commonly and traditionally one of the main means of economic stimulus. Infrastructure provides long-term stimulus, infrastructure creates new jobs, and it also improves quality of life at a time when people may not have the money to travel, or indeed in this situation, they may simply be unable to travel. And so it really improves the quality of local areas. So as an investment, it is likely to be prioritized. And indeed, I would go so far as to say I would expect that it will be prioritized. And it's a long-term investment. And so that's something that governments around the world will be looking to make to stimulate the economy, to create new jobs, and to put in place services and facilities that will be around for the long term. But what do you think, Kirsty? I think, Sarah, um, I agree with all of that. And I think the other thing that will really reinforce um, the value of infrastructure and the value proposition of infrastructure for for investors is that it's a very steady, long-term, stable investment. And in, in a period of really high volatility, I think we're not only going to see governments wanting to invest in infrastructure, but I think it will also become much more appealing for managed funds Um, you know, and the superannuation sector to be looking for that steady, stable return. 
uh, particularly while the rest of uh, the market is so volatile. I think too, um, the point that I'd like to make, Martin, is it's not a case of um, wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of thinking went into identifying our infrastructure needs for now and you know the medium and long term. And uh, that thinking is still valid. But I think the key change is going to be the way in which we engage communities um, and how um, they respond to the crisis and also um, being able to think about some new trends. So not all of our needs will change, but there may be an enhanced need, for example, around um, infrastructure to support telehealth, around uh, the biosecurity measures, personal biosecurity measures that might be embedded into infrastructure. So simple things like hand washing stations, um, improved uh, cleaning cycles and things like that for public uh, toilets in uh, infrastructure facilities. Those are the kind of things that I'm thinking about that may change. The other key change that I think we'll see in the short term behavioural change will be around the consumer preference um, for private transport versus public transport. And certainly in the short term, I think that's something that will have an effect. I think people will prefer to get in their own car rather than on a train or on a bus. Um, And that may stay with us for some months or even, you know, the next year or two. I think that's a really important point because when we talk about the infrastructure investment relative to the pandemic, we have to remember that Australia has just come out of its worst bushfire season in living memory. And so there's a huge amount of rebuilding and social recovery still to occur from that. Climate change hasn't gone away. And so it's also thinking about infrastructure as a stimulus and a response to these other crises that we were already facing. And there's a huge opportunity in the infrastructure investment to come to start to not only help with bushfire recovery, but also to respond to climate risks. And there's a global discussion happening now about how any infrastructure investment that may occur in response to the pandemic as a fiscal stimulus could also be a green infrastructure investment. And the issue that Kirsty just raised around public transport means that we're probably going to have some really tense debates about trade-offs between things like public transport, which we know reduce climate change, um, and the necessary social distancing and cleanliness concerns that are going to come from the pandemic. And I think that's a really interesting observation because obviously, as you say, there has been this trend towards trying to encourage people to use public transport um, more broadly as a as a way of sort of um, tackling uh, tackling climate change. But you, you know what you're saying there is that you know because of the social distancing aspects, some of those public transport projects might not uh, proceed as as they were originally envisaged? Well, look, there's always opportunities to change infrastructure design. And we know that office spaces are likely to need to change in the coming months if people are able to return to work. There are still going to be social distancing requirements in place for some time to come. So there may be design changes to infrastructure that can respond to those concerns. I think as well, it's about thinking how we plan long-term for infrastructure that can 
meet the needs related to the pandemic, but that still keeps in mind how we need to, as a society, respond to climate change. One of the lessons that comes out of community engagement research, and it's one of the things that Kirsty and I have talked about uh, in some public writing that we've been doing, is how if community members really understand the risks of a particular decision, they are often really willing and interested to have the discussions and to consider trade-offs, for example, between taking public transport and potentially being exposed to low levels of community transmission of a virus. The key that we know from community tr- community engagement research is that people need to understand the context of those risks and to be given an opportunity to talk through the choices. And often you'd, you'd be pleasantly surprised at the very rational and sometimes innovative outcomes that communities will choose when they are aware of the concourse of choices available to them. There was a participatory budgeting exercise in SA as well, which actually showed that people chose when they had the opportunity to choose. um, It was around community investment and when they had the opportunity to vote and choose um, how community investment funds should be spent, they actually made extremely rational decisions and the things that they chose reflected the needs of those communities. They weren't um, sort of really uh, frivolous suggestions that they were making or voting for. So, yeah, we, we know that people are rational. I think the other key thing about community engagement research, Sarah, just picking up on that great point from you, is that it's really important not only to explain the risk but to contextualise it. So one, for example, that I had personal experience with is from the recycled water sector, and we found that um, people were really concerned about a substance called NDMA, which can be present in uh, purified recycled water and which has been linked to cancer and a number of other health issues. But when you explained to people that actually the level of NDMA NDMA that you might find in purified recycled water was somewhat less than you would find in a beer, people were pretty relaxed. They went, oh, okay, that's a familiar, trusted product. You know, I drink a beer, it's okay. So it's really about being able to explain the risk, explain the options, but also to contextualize that risk with something familiar so that people can feel comfortable with knowing um, what that level of risk means for them in their life. So you've explained what the value proposition is of infrastructure spending, particularly in regards to economic recovery after crises. You mentioned the uh, global financial crisis as as one example of that. But you know, if you were Scott Morrison or if you were one of the state or territory leaders, where and on what projects would you be spending your infrastructure money after the coronavirus crisis passes? Where are you going to get maximum sort of bang for your buck? I think we would argue that after the crisis passes is too late. So one of the lessons that we learned from the 2008-2009 global financial crisis was that you will get the most economic benefit when you begin investing in infrastructure even before recovery. And so in this case, that means even before the pandemic is over or even before some of these restrictions begin to lift. 
one of the things that we also need to consider and that we've been arguing for is a rethink and potential fast tracking and resequencing of particular infrastructure projects now at a time when suburbia is the new CBD. One of the things that really slows down major urban infrastructure projects is local business opposition to those projects. They don't want to have their clearways closed off. It interferes with parking. You get major traffic delays. If your business is blocked by hoarding and you have to put those terrible signs out the front that say, we're still open, this is a huge impact. And right now there's a major opportunity as long as it can be made safe for the construction workers to fast track and ramp up some of that urban infrastructure delivery and reduce that normal impact on local businesses. So we think the time to act is now, and it may be through some rethinking, some resequencing. And that also includes thinking about the poor folks who are now in their suburban homes as offices all day and whether some of those suburban infrastructure projects also need to be reconsidered and potentially resequenced because it's pretty frustrating uh, to have a jackhammer outside your front window when you're now trying to both work, homeschool, and just generally live at home most of the time. I think too, Sarah, the, the beauty of investing that way in terms of resequencing and accelerating those projects that are already underway Um, is that we're not looking to then jump through additional hoops in terms of planning, in terms of procurement. Those are projects that are rolling. Let's make them roll faster or let's make them roll faster in the places where people are not at the moment. Um, And in doing so, reduce that that impact when people are back to work. Um, So I, I think that's a great way to do it. And that's where obviously maintenance projects also become very appealing because they're quick to procure, they're they're quick to ramp up. Um, And they're those projects that often pull in small suppliers, small businesses, particularly in regional areas who, as Sarah mentioned, may have already been hit with a triple whammy of drought, bushfire, and then um, coronavirus. So to be able to roll out those kind of maintenance projects and to inject funds into smaller regional communities, smaller businesses is really appealing Um, at a time like this. And we know that maintenance is something that's typically underspent um, in the infrastructure sector. Everyone likes to cut the ribbon, but the maintenance is a little less sexy. So unfortunately, we are going to have to draw this conversation to a close. But before you do, I want to pick up both of your brains with one more question. Obviously, these types of conversations in terms of infrastructure spending as we come out of the coronavirus crisis are happening at various levels of government. But, you know, if you had those decision makers in the room, in the virtual podcast cupboard with us here today, what would be your key piece of advice that you'd give to them in terms of thinking about our infrastructure future in a post-coronavirus crisis world? Perhaps if I can start with you, Kirsty. I think my key message would be don't let the stats on falling migration put you off. Go ahead, make the investment. Let's get the capacity that we need now for the future. Completely agree. Keep your long-term vision in place. Infrastructure is an intergenerational investment 
and you can look at the United States, which is coming up to the 86th anniversary of the Works Progress Administration, which was part of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal in response to the Great Depression. And no one there would regret the 40,000 schools that were created, the two and a half thousand hospitals, more than a thousand libraries, more than a thousand airports. These are things that last for the long term. And it's really critical now that we keep that long-term vision and the future of Australia in mind. It's been a fascinating discussion. So thank you both so much, Kirsty and Sarah, for sharing your insights with us today. It's been great to have you back on the pod. Thanks, Martin. It's great to be here from our weird little recording cupboards. Listeners, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions or thoughts on today's episode, please do get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter where we are APPS Policy Forum. That's Apps Policy Forum. You can send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net or even better, as I said before, join the pod squad on Facebook. You can find us as Policy Forum Pod there. And of course, we wouldn't want you to miss out on any future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. So we highly recommend you subscribe to us. You can do so on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. And if you've got a few minutes to spare, please also leave us a review. We always love hearing from you. We'll be back soon with another episode of Policy Forum Pod, but until then, stay safe, look after one another, and cheerio for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.